Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to the Spooky Soup Podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tessa. So, um, you know you know what? I haven't asked you in a long time. How you doing? I'm doing real good. And yeah. I realized that in the last few episodes, I, I quit asking you how your week was. That's okay. We've been really busy, so yeah. I do not blame you. Summertime, work, family, busy yeah. stuff. Okay, Jesse's backpack just moved on its own. Always does that. Remember, it did that a couple months ago too. Yeah, it did. Freaky. This Something building. about this building. We're recording in an old. How old is this building again? Um, it was built in the 1910s, so oh. it's 110 something years at old. Least, uh, at least 110. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and it's it's cool. It's a very beautiful historic building, but creepy. Oh yeah, super creepy. Spooky. Sorry, spooky is the better word for that. There you go. Yeah. Okay. Um, I have the uh, historical story today. And you have? Not Reddit stories. Following I, a theme after last week. I figured. Yeah. Nice. What do you have? We've got a new story. And I've got kind of a true crime story I okay. saw on Reddit and it piqued my interest and found a Netflix documentary all about it. So... This was actually pretty big news, and somehow I missed it. Okay. So it sounds like you're taking, like, the historical stuff, but turning it into, like, a smaller story. Yeah. Like a little micro content. I like it. Change it up. That's actually what our TikTok is for. So if you guys want to uh, see some micro content like that, head over to our TikTok, Spooky Soup Podcast. Um, Yeah. So before you begin, I just want to let everyone know that you – can if there are any images associated with our stories today those images will be posted on our instagram and then if you would like to send us a story for us to read on the podcast you are more than welcome to do so they can be true they can be completely made up as long as they're spooky and you can email those to us at spooky soup podcast 801 at gmail.com or dm those to us on our instagram yes do it And in our last episode, if you haven't listened to that, we had an author send us some of their short, scary stories, and they were just incredible. I highly recommend listening to that and also checking out their book, which is linked in the description. From the last episode. Yes. But I think it might still be free. I don't know. Go check it out. Um, Okay. So I, I think that's it. I'll let you take the wheel. All right. So, I am reporting on some breaking news, at least breaking news as of recording. Well, th- can I can I ask real quick, is it about the Titanic? Yes. <laughs> I knew it. I freaking <laughs> knew it. <laughs> so, by the time this episode's released, we'll know the fate of the Titan. Um, and looking back, I'm either going to eat my words or be proven correct. And I truly hope I'm not proven correct. So, as Jesse just said, a submarine from the tourism and research company called Ocean Gate recently went missing on an expedition to the depths of the Atlantic Ocean to explore the Titanic shipwreck. Um, which, side note, I just think it's really funny that it's called Ocean Gate because, you know, there was like Pizza Gate, Watergate. This is Ocean Gate. <laughs> I didn't even think, I didn't even put that together. It's That's the hilarious. name of the company. Oh my gosh. Please do not sue us of or course, come after us. <laughs> of course, there's another conspiracy theory here. Another gate. Yeah. Watergate. <laughs> if you said that already. <laughs> Watergate 2.0. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, about one hour and 45 minutes into the submarine's trip into the Atlantic Ocean, all communications with its five passengers went completely dark without a trace and here's what i gathered from usa today about who's on the craft on board are a british adventurer two members of a prominent pakistani business family a titanic expert and the ceo of ocean gate the washington state-based company that operates the vehicle now this is a big deal because oxygen is running out and if the people on board haven't already suffered death they will deal with the terror of running out of oxygen stuck in a 22-foot coffin capsule deep in the darkest environment possible where no light shines. I think from what I read, their oxygen actually runs out today. Yes, less than a day. And 
You might be wondering, well, why don't they just use GPS to locate the submarine? Well, GPS doesn't work underwater. That's the problem. So our best bet now at finding the submarine is to use sonar, but even that has its limitations. Adding insult to injury, the son of the British adventurer posted a picture of himself smiling at a Blink-182 concert, even though he already knew that his dad was likely perishing at the bottom of the ocean, claiming in the caption that his family would want him to be at the concert, so that's why he decided to go. Anything to get your mind off of your dad stuck in a capsule in the ocean, I guess. Yeah, and I'm not sure if it's the same kid, but I just read before we were we were recording this a brand new article that came out saying that the son of one of the people on board was in the Instagram DMs while his dad is missing of like an OnlyFans model. Sounds like he's not too worried about it. Yeah, it sounds like a douchebag. Yeah. Yeah, and I have a lot of things to say about that. But first and foremost, with the kind of money that his family has, why the hell has he not chartered a boat to go to the search zone so that he can be waiting there to comfort and embrace his dad should he resurface? Time is of the essence here, and all this dipshit can do is think about, where are you? (laughs) (laughs) He's just a menace. (laughs) Now, for this next part, I'm going to describe what happens should there be a breach in the armor of the submarine and what that means from a human biological standpoint. If the Titan isn't found and should the visitors of the Titanic meet a similar fate, I hope that it's as painless as possible and that there's no suffering. But when the breach occurs, meaning that the outer shell of the submarine can't withstand the pressure of the immense weight of water at such depths, Things get really explosive. And according to Eurodoc.net, when a submarine ruptures, the fittings and pipes give way as the intense water pressure crushes the hull, similar to the process of crushing an egg or a lemon in a fist. All the people die inside within seconds. That means that before a human's nervous system even has time to register pain, they are already dead. They're in pieces, essentially. Because the pressure displacement is so large, it creates, and I'm not sure how true this is, I'm not a physicist, but because of the pressure displacement, it's believed that there could be intense heat. It's literally an explosion that happens. Mm -hmm. And one second they're there, the next they're obliterated. The depth that the Titan is meant to go to is 3,800 meters or 12,500 feet. This means that there's 6,000 PSI at that depth. So imagine having 35 elephants standing on top of your skull. You would die instantly with that kind of pressure. But good news shines like light in the darkness today as rescue crafts reported hearing the sounds of banging in the depths as they were searching for the missing submarine. This is hopefully the sound of people inside the Titan who will, fingers crossed, be rescued as soon as the source of the banging can accurately be located. That being said, however, the chances are still really slim. I hope that they find the missing craft, and I hope each person is returned home as soon as possible, and I hope that whoever that dipshit son is gets disowned as quickly as that father gets home. Whether the father lives or dies, I feel like he's going to punish his son. He's either going to take him out of the will or haunt him. Hopefully he takes him out of this world. (laughs) In both instances. Yes. <laughs> you know, like a little... I better not say it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, so hopefully by the time we air this episode, we have more answers. But, um, yeah, pretty scary situation. The yeah. All around was like a big no-no. They should not have done this. There was... Uh, no. From what, I, from what I read, like the in, the lights they used from the interior was... I don't know why I find this so funny. I think it was just like something they picked up at the Home Depot. Yeah, something Um, like that. The controller that was used to guide it was a like $25 Logitech controller. So think of like your Xbox controller. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And also, if you look at the pictures of this thing, it is not comfortable. No, there's no room for you to lie down in it. No. It's sitting room only. 
mm-hmm. for five people. So yeah. maybe like two or three people could lay down, but that would be so uncomfortable. Yeah. And like, how are they going to the bathroom in this thing? I'm guessing that they made a pee corner. <laughs> but like, you know, if it rocks, it <coughs> just all yeah. slides down. It is what it is. It's yeah. It's unfortunate. It is. So we hope for their uh, safety and they can somehow be rescued. Yes, and <coughs> take this as you will. It's insensitive. I'm really sorry. Um, but I think it would offer people some comfort in knowing that should something horrible happen and they were to perish uh, due to pressure displacement, it would be as instant as crushing an empty aluminum can. Like, they, you're biologically, your body would not have a single second to feel pain should that happen to you. And unfortunately, that's quite possible. So I really hope that they come home really fast and that we have good news within the next few hours. Yeah, we'll see. Now, my second story that I'm talking about today is equally as bleak, so strap in. (laughs) I found this as I was searching on an Ask Reddit forum for the closest you've ever been to a dead body. And when I found this, someone was talking about how they lived in a town where an entire family was found hanging inside of their home. What? Yeah. And I was like, excuse me? I looked it up. Whole Netflix documentary about this. Uh, It's everywhere. And somehow I missed it. It's called The Burari Deaths, A Strange Case with Many Unanswered Questions. Posted by Samantha. Samanika Chatham on r slash true crime. The case I'm about to talk about has been recently made into a three-part limited series on Netflix named House of Secrets. I will try to present a detailed account of the incident and resulting investigation. This case is considered solved on paper, however, the motivations for this drastic step by the family is something that is largely shrouded in mystery. Burari is a locality slash constituency situated in North Delhi, the capital of India. It was also the home of the Bhatia slash Chandawat family. The media in India referred to the family by both surnames. I will henceforth refer to them as the Chandawat family and will also state the reason for the two surnames in this post. The Chandawats were a family that were well known in their Sant Nagar neighborhood as they had a grocery and plywood shop in the area. They had been living in a two-story house in the area for nearly 20 years till the time of the incident, moving there from their native town in Tohana, Haryana. The Chunawats were a family of three generations under the same roof, and the names of the families, which I will list below, they were essentially a joint family of 11 members, with seven women and four men, with the family matriarch, her three children, spouses of two of the children, along with her grandchildren, all living together. On the morning of July 1st, 2018, around 7.15 a.m., a neighbor of the family, who used to go on morning walks with one of the deceased, went to the Chandawat residence after noticing Layla Chandawat's absence for the morning walk. Now, Layla is the son of the matriarch, by the way and as well as the fact that the family shop was still not open. The family usually opened their shops between 5 to 5.30 a.m. Sensing this as extremely odd, as they were very punctual, the neighbor decided to check up on the family. He went up to their house and found that the front door was open. On entering the living room, he saw ten members of the family, including Layla Chandawat, hanging. He raised an alert by calling other neighbors, and the police were called around 7.30 a.m. The scene in the living room was truly terrifying. Ten of the eleven family members, two men, six women, and two teens, were found hanging by a metal railing below a skylight on the ceiling. So think of metal crossbars. Like, there's a big square cut, it, cut out in the ceiling for a skylight, and they have metal crossbars on there. That's where they were found hanging. They were found close together, blindfolded, with their hands bound behind their backs, feet tied together, duct tape over their mouth, and ears plugged with cotton balls. There were five stools, probably shared by the ten members for the hanging. The family matriarch, 
80-year-old Nar sorry, this is hard to pronounce, but Narayani Devi was found dead in a bedroom of the house. It appeared that she had been strangled with a belt and was tied to the handle of the closet in the room. Tommy, the pet dog of the family, was the only survivor in the house. He was chained on the roof of the house and was suffering from a high fever, along with showing signs of agitation and anxiety when the police came. It's not clear which family member tied him there, and unfortunately he died soon after due to um, him being tied up for so long in the heat. Considering the number of deceased in question, the police and the public at large initially considered this to be the case of a planned murder. Even the surviving siblings of Laylit, a sister and a brother who were spared of this fate because they stayed in other cities, were insistent that their family would not commit suicide out of the blue and that the police should treat the crime as a murder. News channels on getting wind of the incident converged upon Burari, hoping to sensationalize the incident and improve their own ratings. Local politicians got involved in this as well, protesting for justice for the family along with sloganeering. Under these circumstances, the Delhi police initially registered a murder case due to immense public scrutiny, pressure from hardline groups, and accusations of cover-up from relatives, even though there were signs that this was a mass suicide with occult overtones. With this information in hand, the police commenced their investigation. Now, digging into the family history, the Chandawats were active members of their community and were in regular contact with their neighbors, friends, and other relatives. None of the people they were in contact with noticed any signs of depression or mental disturbance. The family was financially sound, with their grocery and plywood shop bringing in good income, and all of them were educated, with Tina, the wife of Layla, having a master's degree in sociology. The younger children were all attending college with one of the grandchildren, Priyankya, working in the MNC. Most importantly, however, the Chandawats were looking forward to the upcoming wedding of Priyanka, who had gotten engaged merely two weeks before the suicide on the 17th of June, 2018. She, the daughter of Pritaba, had finally gotten engaged after facing a lot of difficulty in finding a groom through an arranged marriage setup. Her fiancé's family was also well-off, and in short, the Chandawat family had everything looking up for them. They really had no reason to abruptly end their lives like this. The police commenced their investigation with a search of the family's house. On searching the home temple, a small one, the police found 11 diaries belonging to Leilat Chandawat. The diaries were written by Leilat over a period of 11 years, with the first entry being made sometime in August of 2007. The contents of the diaries were instructional in nature and dictated the daily routine of the members, including their eating habits and other mundane activities for financial and general betterment of the family. The notes appear to have a major bearing on the way all of the members of the family lived their lives and any deviation of said routine had consequences for the person breaking the rules. It appeared that the entries were being made in a way that someone was dictating the contents to be written. It was here that the police realized that this case was not at all what it seemed. The assessment of the diaries pointed to a larger role by Leilat in the grand scheme of things. Now, this name I keep mentioning, Leilat, he was the only earning member of the Chandawat family when they moved to Delhi. Before moving to Delhi, he was studying medicine at a private college in Hisar, he could not take exams in his first year because he met with a vehicle accident, which caused him significant brain injury. He thus had to repeat the year. In the third year, during examinations, he fell ill once again, unable to be at his, academ his academic best due to his health. He dropped out, never again going back. It's said that this accident probably brought about some changes in him, affecting his personality due to the brain injury. As per a close friend, Laylot joked a lot and was popular for his sense of humor in his group of friends. However, he was also no-nonsense and never compromised on his principles. He started working at a plywood shop in Delhi in the mid-1990s at around 10 years ago. He opened up his own shop in Burari. In February 2002, he got married to Tina. Three years later, their son was born. 
In 2004, a major incident took, sorry, shook Laylot's life. On having a dispute with his employer due to wages, he was pushed under several sheets of plywood and set on fire. Laylot somehow managed to escape and save his life. The matter was resolved through a compromise, however, and he was left traumatized. The incident deeply affected him, and he lost his ability to speak and was never the same again. Wow, that's insane. Another blow came in February of 2007 when his father died of respiratory illness. The family patriarch held the family together, and the whole family was devastated. Like most families in India, their father was ahead of the family and everyone consulted him for any important decision that they needed to be taken along with general advice for the betterment of the family. The family probably felt truly orphaned at this point as the person they looked up to for solution through any difficult situation was gone. To help cope with his loss, a priest was called for a prayer which would take place for 10 days at their home. One of those 10 days, when the family was involved in the prayers, Laylot, the one who had the accident, suddenly started chanting. The family was absolutely shocked, as well as delighted, because his voice had come back to him. And everybody said, Daddy has returned. The Chandawats believed that the spirit of their father, recently deceased, came back through his son, Laylot. On being asked by a friend as to how he regained his voice, Laylot said that his father came to him in a dream and asked him to perform a prayer. After the father's death, so the grandfather of this family, the patriarch, the family dived further into their devotion, indulging in prayer and venerations. Every night at around 9 p.m., they would sit together and pray for 15 to 30 minutes. The Chandawat grandchildren would try to invite their neighbors over for prayer as well by telling them, daddy as in their grandfather it's time for him to come home lifestyle changes by the family after Leilat's voice returned the family adopted different lifestyles like completely stopping to eat and cook non-vegetarian food and they even stopped drinking at home the number of shops increased from one to three Leilat's plywood shop their grocery store and then the third one they were setting up together, and so did the floors of the house. So, the person who wrote this, what they mean is that business was great, even so much so that they were able to redo the floors of their home. These changes took place despite the fact that the grandfather himself would drink and consume non-vegetarian food. Leilot, however, was always kind of teetering around on what he should do. The first mention of the grandfather in Leilat's diaries is made on September 7th, 2007, where in the notes asked the family to keep his black and white photo in front of them and remember him. It was then on the family was convinced that their father's spirit was communicating through Leilat. The instructions given had to be strictly followed by all the family members and any deviation in the same would affect the health of Leilat and his wife. Apart from instructing routines, Leilat told his family that his father asked him to perform banyan tree worship for the betterment and progress of the family. Leilat instructed the family to not disclose any of the rituals or instructions to anyone outside of the home, and everyone obliged. No one, not even those closest to the family, was aware of what was going on. The banyan tree ritual involved the family members tying a noose around their neck made from a type of stole or a sari. The upper end of the noose would be attached to the metal railing in the living room. All the members of the family would cover their eyes, ears, and mouth along with the binding of their hands and feet. They would have to stand on a stool and suspend themselves like aerial roots from the banyan tree. The oldest member of the family, due to her old age, would not be able to stand like the others on the stools, so she lied down for the ritual. The diary detailed that they would not be afraid of death as daddy, a.k.a. their grandfather, would come back and resurrect them. The night of June 30th, the police obtained the CCTV footage of a camera facing the entrance of the family home. The footage showed two of the women taking stools found at the crime scene up to their house. 
two of the teenagers were seen taking wires and ropes to bind hands and feet from their plywood shop. Also, another family member brought food from a restaurant nearby. There was no evidence of an intruder or anyone else other than the family entering the home. After this, it's probable that the family ate food together and then initiated the ritual. On the basis of the CCTV footage, it appeared to the police that the family was well aware of what they were doing and were actually a part of the whole planning process for the ritual of Laylot's instructions. A friend of the two teenagers met them as they were procur procuring wires and ropes before the ritual. The friend recalled both of them being in good mood and even laughing. This gives an insight as to how the family was probably convinced that no harm would come to them. As per the post-mortem report, the deaths took place on the morning of July 1st, 2018, around 1 to 1.30 a.m. Based on the ligature marks, the deaths happened due to hanging. Based on the bindings, Layla and Tina probably tied everyone's hands and feet as their own bindings seemed to be loosely tied. And their eldest family member was probably strangled in the room by Layla first as she would not be able to stand for the ritual. There is no sign of poisoning or injuries on the bodies. The food eaten by the family was also tested and found to be clean. Now, I dug into this case a little bit further, and it seems that whatever happened to Laylock caused him to have an extreme change in behavior to the point where he was convinced that he was his father. Um, so extreme that even the family was convinced of this also. Uh, as far as they were concerned, Laylot was no longer around. It was their grandfather who was their beloved patriarch. And so, yeah, it's just been a wild ride of a case to look into. And there's so much more to it, especially concerning how Laylot's injury affected his mental health. Um, there's this really weird obsession with the number 11, considering that 11 family members died. There's... 11 house or sorry 11 windows in the house there's 11 really odd pipes just like sticking out of the wall and so yeah i really highly suggest you go watch the docuseries because it explains it a little bit better than i and Damn you get it. to hear from no thanks <laughs> you get to hear from like some first-hand accounts of people who knew them so really interesting and quite terrifying jeez well okay i know what i'm adding to my watch list yeah boy very interesting house of secrets that's what it's called and it's on netflix correct yes okay awesome all right everyone go check it out okay you ready for my story i'm so ready you got the historical story today i do changing it up woo woo. instead of one we have three three we have three all right so yeah and I apologize that I'm going off of today. We're just doing different things, you know, not, not doing a Reddit story today. We're not doing one solid historical story besides what you just told. I mean, it was, <laughs> like, it was happened? sourced from Reddit and then yeah, sure. Went deeper. <laughs> okay. Well, well, growing up, our family had the privilege of visiting very famous places throughout Europe that relate to world war two. Oh, dang. I I'm excited about this. I hope so. I will never forget the trip we took to visit Normandy. The bunkers, the beach, and even the little museum they had at the time displayed uniforms of the soldiers who bravely stormed the beach. As some of you may know, I love learning about World War II. My wife and I were able to visit Pearl Harbor a couple of years ago, and I was struck with awe and emotion. I just love learning about it. Today, I'm actually going to change it up a little bit, and I am sharing three spooky war events that chill me to my core. This is awesome. I can't wait. So even though World War II is my thing, some of these are not from World War II. One of them, I believe. So here's story number one. And the reason why I'm not covering each of these on their own is because they're not long enough. I'm sure I could make it into a long, longer story. There's no need. I feel like I could break these down pretty easy. Um, and we're gonna, you're gonna learn something today, hopefully. So sick this first story it's called operation wandering soul this first story takes us to vietnam 
Operation Wandering Soul, also known as Ghost Tape Number 10, was a psychological warfare campaign conducted by the U.S. during the Vietnam War. It aimed to exploit the cultural beliefs and fears of the Vietnamese people, particularly those of the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese Army soldiers. The operation involved the creation of fabricated audio recordings that were, di- were excuse me, were designed to imitate the sounds and voices of restless spirits and deceased Vietnamese soldiers. Oh, that's terrifying. <laughs> Wait. The intention was to evoke fear, guilt, and psychological distress among the enemy troops in the hopes of demoralizing them and disrupting their morale. The recordings sounded like moans, eerie voices, and screams. Even screams excuse me, even screams that sounded like someone was being tortured to death. The audio recordings used in Operation Wandering Soul were specifically designed to exploit the Vietnamese belief in the power of the spirits of the dead. The Vietnamese culture places great importance on properly honoring deceased ancestors and ensuring their peaceful transition to the afterlife. It is believed that their restless spirits of those who died in a violent or untimely manner can can bring misfortune or harm to the living, if not properly appeased. The recordings featured ghostly sounds, mournful cries, and anguished voices speaking in Vietnamese. They were broadcasted from loudspeakers and helicopters, creating an eerie and haunting atmosphere in areas where the enemy forces were believed to be present. The messages often contained pleas from the spirits of dead soldiers, urging the enemy troops to abandon their cause and return home. Operation Wandering Soul was primarily carried out in the late 1960s and early 1970s. It is important to know that the the effectiveness of the operation is a subject of debate. While some claim that it had a significant impact on the psychological state of the enemy troops, leading to the desertions and increased infections. Others argue that its actual influence was limited and difficult to measure conclusively. Now, are you curious to know what this audio sounded like? Yes. Well, I have it ready for you. Yes. Um, By the way, for everyone listening, you can Google it yourself. You can find it on YouTube. It is titled Ghost Tape Number 10, and I'm just going to play a snippet of it. It is a... Uh, four and a half minute clip, but here we go. That's just a little snippet for you. Yeah, I don't like that. (laughs) Now, just imagine you're just, you know, you're in the forest late at night. You're already, like, super tensed up just from knowing that the enemy is right around the corner. (laughs) You're, like, taking a dookie out (laughs) away from your (laughs) platoon. And that's what you hear. Oh, I'd be like, I do not need assistance taking a dookie. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So Operation Wandering Soul stands as a testament to the psychological strategies deployed during the Vietnam War, highlighting the United States' endeavors to erode enemy morale through cultural and psychological manipulation. As haunting as it is, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, I think it's like a low blow, but hey, if they got rid of some troops without any violent means, I'm down. I'm down a clown. Exactly. It just sent them, like, the, you know, uh, sorry, let me back up. If you go to the clip on YouTube, you'll see that um, when it's, when you start hearing voices, there's English translation, and it says, um, 
lifted me back up. Daddy, daddy, come home with me. Come home, daddy, daddy. Who is that? Who is calling me? My daughter? My wife? Your father is back home with you, my daughter. And so it's it's probably them just like, like in their head, they're probably thinking like, I just got to go. <laughs> so hopefully if they if they did go home, like, good job. <laughs> yeah, they're, uh, they're hitting all the emotions there. Terrifying, first yeah. of all. Secondly, like, that's my daughter. Crap. Scary. Scurry. Yeah. Okay, so this is story number two. The Japanese cannibals. Ooh, interesting. That's okay. all I have to say. That's the story. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> just leave it right there. That's it. A lot of horror stories from World War II have to do with the horrendous acts committed by the Nazi party. However, this story and the next have to do with the Japanese. On a small island in the Pacific Ocean held some of the worst acts imaginable during World War II. In 1944, Japan had control over this island named Chimijima as it was only 600 miles from Tokyo. The Allies knew this information and would regularly bomb the island to take out as much of the Japanese army as possible. They did this so that they would not waste a lot of men by storming the island. It was They were all air raids. The bombing raids went on from 1944 to 1945. So, American fighter planes would swoop down, release heavy firepower, and fly back up. Over the course of that year, over 100 American airmen were shot down, and as far as we know, at least 20 of those men were captured. The Japanese were ruthless creatures, like beyond being human, in my opinion. The prisoners of war would face daily torture, and if you were lucky, you would be executed because of how awful the torture was. For example, they were used as target practice. Hate that. Yeah. I want to talk about eight airmen in particular that were captured. The eight men were tortured, clubbed, beaten, impaled, and beheaded. This alone boils my blood. I think about our grandfather who was in the U.S. Navy during World War II, and I know it's horrible to think that, but, like, I can't help it. Like, just knowing that, like... That could have been our grandpa, you know. Yes, I consider us very lucky that it was not him, mm -hmm. considering he was on ships around there. Yeah. You would think their misery and crimes would, against them would end there with them being dead, right? Well, not exactly. Major Suo Matoba organized a repugnant event within his quarters where prisoners' flesh was prepared for an exclusive feast attended by officers. In a similar vein, Captain Shizu Yoshil hosted his own macabre gathering. Commanders of the island's armies and navy, respectively, were among the participants who engaged in acts of cannibalism. Shockingly, four American airmen were executed with, their intention, with the intention of, par of partially consuming their remains. Their thighs were stripped of flesh and their livers were served as delicacies. These acts of cannibalism on Chichijima were driven by alleged physical and spiritual benefits, as well as a desire to assert dominance over their captive victims as a form of re revenge for the American air raids. Among the victims were Marv Mershon, Floyd Hall, Jimmy Dye, and Warren Earl Vaughn. Warren. Warren. That was our grandpa. Ah. That was his name. There was a ninth airman that was shot down along with the other eight, but he was not captured. But how? He was able to bail out of his plane earlier than the other eight and landed safely in the ocean below. A life jacket kept him above water while his pilot buddies protected him with covering fire. A U.S. submarine emerged from below and safely rescued the fortunate ninth pilot. That man who was saved was George H.W. Bush, the 41st U.S. president. He's got to be the luckiest man. Jeez. Mm -hmm. This isn't the only time the Japanese captured an eight people. One notable incident occurred during the Battle of Imphal in 1944. A critical 
conflict between the British Indian Army and the Japanese forces in Manipur, India. The Japanese soldiers faced severe logistical challenges during their retreat from Imphal due to the British, for British forces' effective defense. As a result, they experienced extreme hunger and desperation. Some Japanese soldiers resorted to acts of cannibalism, including eating the flesh of fallen Indian soldiers. These acts of cannibalism were reported by, by British and Indian troops who encountered evidence such as mutilated bodies and bones stripped of flesh. The Japanese soldiers not only consumed the flesh of their enemies, but also engaged in various forms of mutilation and torture. The motivations behind such acts of cannibalism are complex and varied. Factors such as starvation, psychological stress, and a distorted sense of superiority or revenge may have contributed to the behavior of these soldiers. The extreme conditions of war, including the breakdown of normal societal norms and the brutal nature of combat, can sometimes lead to such horrific events. I thought that there would be side effects to eating human flesh, but surprisingly, there aren't. Only if you eat the human brain. Exactly. The only thing that you should not eat is the human brain. If you consume the human brain, you can develop a disease called Kuru. According to Medical News Today, Kuru is a unanimously fatal transmissible spongy form. Um, oh gosh, this word. Encephalophy. Yeah. Um, these are rare degenerative brain disorders uh, or prion diseases. Uh, and then, actually, I found this quote from Esquire, and it said, What baffled researchers was that Kuru wasn't a virus or a living bacteria. Instead, it was a strange process that, re that researchers compared to Dr. Jekyll's transformation into Mr. Hyde, the thin line between good and evil crossed by a twisted protein, one that tricked other proteins in the brain to twist like it, damaging the brain's cerebellum. Essentially, one would lose control over their emotions in their body and eventually would just die. But luckily for zombies, they are already dead. <laughs> so they can eat That's all true. the brains they want. Brains. Okay, so this is story number three. Have you heard of Unit 731? Yes. You have? Yes. Dang it. Movie. Book. Mm. Maybe. Maybe. So, Unit 731 was the... <laughs> how do I put this in, in a nice in nice way? Uh, essentially, Japan created this unit so that they could use Chinese people as test subjects for biological and chemical weapons. Shiro Ishii, born in 1892 was the man who led this unit. He was a surgeon who was extremely fascinated with infection. Ishii fought in the First World War and was recognized for his knowledge of weapons of mass destruction. He was ordered to form a new unit called Unit 731 Water Purification Unit. Multiple other doctors joined this unit and it quickly became a massive operation. From 1936 to 1945, Unit 731 killed anywhere from 200,000 to 300,000 Chinese people. Terrible. They experimented with these poor souls. The first type of torture was that they released multiple types of fleas and diseases throughout the towns and villages and studied how the people reacted to them. These germs were full of typhus, smallpox, and the plague. Victims were injected with cholera, gonorrhea, syphilis, and even tuberculosis. The children were, were fed food fairly well. However, the food was full of chemicals. The children would then be studied to see how their bodies internally reacted to the chemicals. This is just awful. Yeah, sorry. If you look up images of the doctors that worked for Unit 731, they were always wearing these freaky suits that covered them from head to toe and think of what Marty McFly wears in Back to the Future where he pretends to be Darth Vader 
for like that two seconds. Yeah. <laughs> but much worse. It's uh, instead of like that plasticky material, think of like leathery material. Anyways. It's, oh, geez. So like witch doctor crossed with Marty McFly. <laughs> it's yeah. And it's it's pretty freaky. It's like straight out of a horror movie. Mm hmm. Why is it always the doctors? Why is it always doctors in these scenarios? So they don't get infected too. Yeah, I mean, there was the <laughs> hyena of Auschwitz that mm -hmm. you talked about. Yeah. And some of the evil things that the doctors did there. It's always them. It's always the doctors. <laughs> so victims that survived have told stories about all of the suffering that occurred. When the doctors arrived in their death suits, they weren't there to help the people. No, they were there to study them. So while people were sick with the numerous hazards released from Unit 731, doctors wanted to see the effects internally. Victims were surgically opened um, opened up without anesthesia. The doctors were not careful to do so either. They tried many different ways to open someone up to see if one option was better than the other. So here's an interesting one. They would expose a person to so many x-rays that the person would die from the internal and external radioactive burns. Like, Jeez, internal burns. Yeah. So that's got to be a lot. Yeah, that's how often that they would x-ray a person, that they Jeez. eventually just die. <laughs> I hope these dudes are rotting in pieces. We'll get there. I'll <laughs> tell you what happens. Thanks. So victims were exposed to freezing temperatures so the doctors could see the effects of frostbite. Heart attacks were induced in random and unnecessary surgeries were performed that are so horrific they are almost, they are unimaginable, unimaginable in my opinion. For example, they would surgically have an arm and a leg switch places. So they would cut them off, sew the, the leg up where the arm goes, and then sew the, the arm where the leg goes. I mean, it's not... It's not it, going to work. It's not going to work. Like, first of all, I can tell you that it's not going to work. Sounds like they just did that for fun. Yeah. Like, I, that's just kind of a no-brainer that the limb will not survive. Yeah. Sexual organs were removed. And if you remember to what I said earlier, this was all without anesthesia. So... Oh, geez. All were awake. Hopefully they passed out from the pain, at least. I'm guessing a lot of people died. Yeah, that too. From yes, the shock and... Definitely. Yeah, blood loss. Male prisoners were forced to rape the female prisoners so the doctors could study the effects of sexually transmitted diseases. First, the males were injected with the various viruses and then forced to lay with, I'm guessing, people they knew from their villages and towns, if you think about it. the This is a funny part to me. The guards were morons, and they also raped the prisoners um, but sure enough, they were infected with the STDs. <laughs> they deserve it. Yeah. Jeez. Some of the rape prisoners had forced abortions performed on them. So. I mean, no child should be raised in those circumstances as it is. And I'm sure it would have killed the mothers. But that's just all around horrible, horrible, horrible. Yeah. After the war, Ishii was arrested by the U.S. Army. You're probably thinking, like, awesome, we got him. Let's torture him. Let's kill him. Let's do exactly what he did to them. He was given immunity from prosecution because the U.S. government believed that out of all the horrors he committed, there was some decent science that came out of it. So he died of old age at 1959. I'm sorry. What? Uh, the rest, uh, a lot of the other doctors were, were arrested as well, and they served... Like, there were some that served life sentences, only, like, a 20-year max sentence. Uh, yeah, it did not end well for the victims. I'm sure that there's a very strong reason behind this, but why were they not arrested by Chinese officials if crimes were committed on Chinese people? I, I feel like I, the outcome would have been very different. Yeah, I I feel like I... Yeah, I don't know the answer. Hmm. Yeah, but I... I mean, what was China doing during World War II? Come on. 
they would have been pissed at Japan. So, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, yeah, I'm not sure, but it is pretty messed up. Um, yeah, those are my three war stories today. I actually titled this the uh, <laughs> my my stories all together. I titled it uh, "War Operation Spooky." So. <laughs> <laughs> Operation spooky. <laughs> yeah, when I was doing research research for today's episode and trying to figure out what the heck to to tell you guys, I could not decide on one, so also helped that they were a little bit shorter and I could just go ahead and combine all of them. So hopefully you guys enjoy that. Yeah, wow. What a roller coaster of emotions, mostly just downhill. But oh my goodness. That's yeah. atrocious. Awful. Yeah. All of it. And what's funny is I actually looked to find like awful crimes committed during World War II, during any war, and no offense to Japanese people, but like most of the stuff that came up was Japanese uh, torture and the horrible things they did. So I had to like do a separate search for like Nazi specific for all that. But the general search was like what all the Japanese did. Yeah, there was a lot. Ugh, it's awful. If you guys need a palate cleanser, like I think I do, um, I don't remember the name of the operation, but there's a really hilarious operation. I think it was run on British soldiers who were in training where they gave them LSD and then had them go through a training where they had to like, pursue an assailant with rifles but it ended up that they were all just like laughing and looking up at the trees and like hiding in the trees and peekabooing at each other. <laughs> um, I don't remember what it's called, but if you look up like LSD operation on soldiers, you'll find it. There's some really funny footage from that training session. So if you need a little palate cleanser, try that. <laughs> that kind of reminds me of what the Nazis tried to do. They tried to come up with a super soldier serum, like exactly what happened in Captain America. And it was like a combination of uh, like cocaine. Um, oh gosh, I'm going to butcher it, but there was just a lot of, <laughs> it was pretty much just drugs to get them, get them going. So it's pretty, I thought that was pretty funny. Of course it just like, it did work in the sense of like when they would go out to battle, they were just like pretty much just like hyped up on caffeine and on pre-workout. And then the come down must have been really harsh, like yeah. the next day, to the point where they're like big negative crash. super soldiers. Yeah, big crash. Yeah. Well, cool. Do you have anything else for us today? That's it for me. I hope you guys enjoyed our stories. We will scare you in the next one. Stay spooky. Bye.